Hello and welcome to Philosophy with Will Anderson. I am Will Anderson from the title of the podcast. Oh boy, I enjoyed today's episode so much. Um, I, I don't really know Damon, our guest today. Um, well, uh, we have a lot of mutual friends and so, you know, around each other's circles, that sort of thing, but we've never had the opportunity to sit down and have a proper conversation, let alone a conversation that gets into the depth that this conversation gets into. Uh, when I first started this podcast, I guess in my mind, the aim was to have those conversations you would have late at night at a party when you found yourself in the corner with somebody and you just ended up talking about whatever you were both most interested in, you know, what life was really about, the decent conversations, fuck the small talk and get to the good stuff. And uh, for someone that I hadn't really, you know, had the opportunity to build up that trust or that momentum with, um, we went there straight away, incredibly generous. Um, with his vulnerability, with his intellect, um, with his honesty about, you know, uh, the voyage of self-discovery that he has been on personally and how he has kind of applied that lens to the greater world. Anyway, you'll hear it all. I'm not going to preempt it, but I just wanted to say how much I enjoyed it. And if you enjoyed it and you want to see Damon's film, 2040, um, there is a, a, plenty of opportunities to do that. Please go out and see it or arrange to get a copy and show it at your workforce, those sort of things. Uh, as Damon explains later in the podcast, you can do. However, uh, if you were in Melbourne, uh, there is another fun thing that you could do. July the 21st. Um, July the 21st, there is a podcast called The Weekly Planet. Now, uh, you know, I, I assume there are some crossover between The Weekly Planet and Philosophy, but it might not be a you know 100% crossover. Uh, the Weekly Planet is a, a weekly... Uh, but they discuss comic book movies mostly, right? And it's brilliant. It's so funny and just so, like, one of the most entertaining shows. The first, one of the first podcasts that I download every week and listen to every week. They're called The Weekly Planet. Anyway, they are doing a live show every year, uh, Planet Broadcasting, their their company. They do a, a fundraiser. They pick a, a cause and they, you know, aim to raise some money to... Uh, which is amazing. They're a small little business, a small little self-started podcasting business. And uh, then they decide that for a month a year that they're going to think about, you know, other people other than themselves, which in the tiny little world of yeah, getting a little podcast up is is a lot to do. But they do it. And uh, this year, it's the environment, the old planet that we're worried about. I, I personally hadn't heard there was any bad news about the planet until this podcast. So I was as surprised as anyone to hear that we're in trouble. But um Anyway, here's what we're doing. Uh, the Weekly Planet and uh, my other show, Tofop. You might occasionally hear Charlie on here doing an ad. Charlie and I have a completely nonsense podcast we've been doing for 10 years next year called Tofop. Um, it's it's about everything and nothing. It's just ridiculous conversations about nonsense. And so we are going to join with The Weekly Planet, Mr. Sunday Movies and Nick Mason, for a live, ponca- live podcast and film fundraiser. So... Um, uh, it's it's going to be myself and Charlie. It's going to be Meso and uh, Mr. Sunday Movies, uh, <laughs> James from uh, the Weekly Planet, and uh, we're going to do a big live podcast. Uh, it's going to be at the uh, Rivoli Cinemas in Melbourne. So if you're in Melbourne or you could be bothered coming to Melbourne, the Rivoli Cinemas in Melbourne, and here's what's going to happen. We're going to do a live podcast. It's going to be about disaster movies. Uh, it's going to be the general theme, and... Uh, uh, we're raising funds in partnership with the film 2040 and the Intrepid Foundation. So the Intrepid Foundation, um, they're trying to make an impact on climate change through their seaweed regeneration project. 
read about it. We talk, we touch on it a tiny bit in this podcast, but read about it. It's an amazing project and uh, something I said project and project there in one sentence. Anyway, we're back to a big rambly intro for the podcast. I'm sorry about that. Anyway, it's uh, Sunday the 21st of July. Riverly Cinemas in Melbourne. We'll do the live podcast first, and then uh, then they're going to show the 2040 film. So it's, if you haven't seen the film, you know it's a good opportunity to come and see the film, see some live entertainment first. Uh, if you're a fan of those podcasts or or any of us, and and you thought it was a good opportunity to come and see the film, you can do that. Anyway, tickets are available. I will post the links, and when I say I, someone will post the links. Um, in the appropriate places, and uh, you can find out about that if you want to come and see that. So, but go and see Damon's film, regardless. Uh, that 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 would be the message of this. Uh, so, thank you very much to Damon. Thank you very much to everybody who's been messaging me about the podcast. I don't see them all. I'm spending less and less time uh, on social media and around social media, uh, as comes up uh, regularly at the moment in the podcast. So, I apologise if I'm sounding like a broken record, but um, I'm I'm just trying to. You know, uh, as we all are trying to work out our relationship with technology in this world, and at the moment, uh, I'm I'm thinking that my life might be a bit beneficial if I just stepped away from the screens more often. And so far, it's been a, a really wonderful experience. So if, if I'm not seeing your messages and I'm not responding to your messages all the time, I apologize for that, but it is mostly because um, I am just spending more and more time in the real world and uh, less and less time in this sort of online world at the moment. Uh, doesn't mean that'll be the case forever, but that is certainly the case at the moment. So, um, all right, here's the podcast. Oh, I'm doing some shows. Oh, a show. I'm having a year off touring. I've banged on about that already previously in the podcast. So, um, uh, Darwin, Darwin Festival. Uh, I'm going to do my Will Eagle show up at the Darwin Festival. Uh, but yeah, in the next few months, not not really doing any live shows just concentrating on some other things in my world and um, got some big plans for the future and some really fun and exciting things that I think I'll try to do late in the year or, you know, early next year or something like that, depending on how things get together. Anyway, you don't need to hear all this rambling. It's been a long time since I've done a big rambling intro, so here's your big rambling intro. I hope you enjoyed this podcast and uh, I'll talk to you again soon. Hello and welcome to Willosophy with Will Anderson. I am Will Anderson from the title of the podcast. My name's in it. It's Willosophy and with Will Anderson. I mean, look, there's some people who complain about this podcast and they say that I talk about myself too much or that the conversations aren't enough about the guests. And I'm like, fuck you, mate, in person on the internet. Fuck you, person on the internet. The show is called Willosophy with Will Anderson. How did you not think that I would insert myself into these conversations? Anyway, there you go. That's a good intro for a guest, isn't it? Me responding to a random person on the internet. This is how the podcast starts. I ask my guest who they are. Who are you? My name is Damon Gamo, and on one sense, I'm a, I'm a father and I'm a husband and I make films and I have slight workaholic tendencies, but I think on another level, I'm um, an amalgamation of a programming of my mother and my father, and I'm on a lifelong quest to rewrite the code to some of those programs that aren't working for me. Man, that is... Okay, all right. Well, out of the blocks, one of the best uh, answers to that question that we've got so is that far. What you meant with, with, with your question? Uh, or was it an open question? It's an open question, and I just like to hear what people say. <laughs> right, and okay. I've got to say that you have come out very strong. Is that, <laughs> yeah, am I, I'm hearing a bit low. Are you getting that as well? Yeah. Is that yeah. 
it is like five. Like five. That's probably five. Okay. Okay. That's what just happened then. I got louder and, and that's fine. But we got that excellent answer. Well, by the way, we are, are we not, still recording live. We are, we are not going to cut any of this out because this is the professional. Okay, please do. This is the professional operation that you've wandered exactly into what today, I expected. mate. Sorry, guys, we're good to go. Okay. We're not cutting this out, Mike. We are leaving this in. You know this. This is what the people expect. They expect a little bit of realness. This isn't your modern commercial radio. We're yes, get, we're, let's. Uh, I reckon we. Do we keep? We are actually not. Let's we keep are, going. This is authentic. And now you're in the podcast as well, Mike. Welcome. I think that's my first appearance, but it's not yeah. about me. Are you, are you happy with your levels, Mike? Yeah, I'm happy with my Great. levels, <laughs> and now I'm happy with yours. <laughs> uh, that was a brilliant answer to that question. I, I loved the idea of uh, you know. Because originally when I started this podcast, it was very much about, you know, I, I late at night um, at a party, my favorite thing is to corner somebody and try to work out what they think the meaning of life is. Mm, yeah. And, you know, essentially this entire podcast is a conceit so that I can have interesting conversations with people that I find interesting. Mm. But normally you have to warm them up a little. <laughs> normally you have to ease them in. But you right. jumped in head first, oh, which yeah. I liked let's about that. Let's just get on to it. Yeah, let's get into it. Uh, you, you strike me as the sort of person who is interested in, you know, uh, how the world works, but also how you work within the world. Is that fair? Yeah, I reckon that's taken up a majority of my life on this planet. Uh, probably since my mid twenties, I sort of went on a quest for, of personal discovery and everything from 10 days silent, uh, Vipassana retreats to ayahuasca in the Amazon to any number of psilocybin adventures to reading all sorts of books and just trying to understand what else is there really, I think, is that we're here for this very small, infinite amount of time in this expansive universe. You have to do everything you can to work out who you are, I think, while you've got the time. Okay. So how did that journey start? Like, why did you decide mid-20s that I'm going to, you know, try to have an internal journey in an external world? You know, I'm going to try to work out what the nature of myself is, what the nature of, (laughs) you know, the world around me is, what the nature of the universe is. Where did that come from? Well, I think for most people, it happens at a crisis point or in a deer. And I was sitting on the steps outside of London nightclub at 25, um, after a girl that I'd moved to London with, um, passed another guy in front of me on the dance floor. And I was just sitting out the front, it's 2 2 a.m. I had no friends in London and I just felt like, is this really it? Like, is this, is this what I'm doing in my life? I was sort of pursuing different things and nothing seemed to be filling that part of me that I wanted it to fill. And so I thought there's just got to be more than this. It's not this, this vacuous surface version of life is not working for me. There's got to be something deeper. So I just sort of had this clandestine approach to reading books. I didn't tell any friends about it. It was not cool to start reading sort of self-help books or Eckhart Tolle, these kind of people. So I sort of did that on the sly. So who did you start with? Um, What was it? What what were the kind of first, you know, the starter kit on your journey of (laughs) self-discovery? Yeah. Like self-discovery 101 was probably. By the way, this is a safe space. If you feel like this is, this is right up my alley. Firstly, I need to say that to you. Yeah. But secondly, if you're ever going to talk about this shit, this, you've come to the right place. It's with you. Yeah. Yeah. It's just the triple M logo yeah. behind you that's a little misleading. Yeah, let's pretend we're uh, not. We're, if it makes you feel more comfortable, we're not meant to be here. Okay. We are, we are using my work resources in a way that they're not familiar with and that they don't endorse. We just happen to be using them today. Outstanding. Okay. Yeah, so look, it began with obviously a few conversations with people that I sort of knew had a different essence to them. There was something about them that I often resonated with. I thought, you don't really get caught up in the in the sort of the hurdy-gurdy of life. You've sort of got something else going on. You're, to quote Guyton, 
you're vibrating in a different frequency. And I just thought, okay, there's something to these people. They just sort of suggested a couple of books. So I really read the bog sort of stock standard ones, which were Eckhart, Eckhart Tolle, those kind of books. Um, there was another one called um, something like Ask and It Is Given or something. My mum gave it to me as well. Just really simple ways to say, okay, there is potentially that you are operating at a version of yourself, which is your ego, but then there's another part of you that has much more depth and understanding. And that's a little voice in your head that, you know, you're having this constant dialogue with. And so I guess that just even starting that really started to get me thinking of, okay, there's more to me than what I thought there was, or this illusion of Damon that I project, this, this act version that I want people to know about me and like, that's actually masking a much bigger part of me that's shit scared to share that part and, and tell who I really am. So it was really easy to hide behind that, but it's fucking exhausting. As you know, when you're keeping up that shop front for most of your life, it's draining and you don't, you don't get to be the real person. Then you're not, you know, your, your friendships aren't authentic or the relationships I found with girls were just so inauthentic. And I, you know, got to 33 and hadn't had a relationship more than three months in my life. And I was like, for fuck's sake, like you got to look at this, bro. There's something going on here. And so then I did a deeper dive and started sort of doing sort of counseling things and with my mom as well. And just trying to find how I got to this point. What are these programs that I've been playing out my life in terms of how I operate and how I interact with the world and women and all sorts of things. And once I started to see those, you know, that's what, I guess what you define consciousness is you become conscious of those programs. So you have the ability to rewrite them and rewire them and actually go off and live your life in a different way. And, and that really did explode my life in a whole range of areas in terms of, you know, my wife now I've been with for 10 years. Um, I started telling my own stories. I was not just hiding behind other people's stories. And as an actor, I felt confidence to, to share my own stories and to live from a very different part, not from my ego and my head, but from my heart and, and, and in things that I really connect with in life. So that idea of standing outside yourself and having a, a you know, a, a legitimate assessment of who you are, because I think you know, as a performer, but particularly as an actor, mm. like, you know, part of your job is, you know, putting on other people's faces, yeah. you know, becoming other people. Um, mm. I think that probably most people are actors to a certain 100%. degree that yeah. the minute we walk out of our house and sometimes within our house, yeah. you know, to the person we're in a relationship with, to that's our right. kids, to our parents, yeah, we're still actors. Life's a stage. Yeah. Everyone's a player on the stage. That's right. So this idea that somehow you're going to stop acting, mm. you know, or at least probably not stop acting, mm. but you know, like not doing that big flamboyant stage acting, you know, like kind <laughs> yeah. of break it down and, you know, yeah. own the act when it's necessary, yeah. you know, and, and be a little more truthful to who you are is, is a terrifying thought yeah. to most people, Shocking. myself included. Yeah. Like, was it a terrifying thought to you or is it something that you willingly embrace? No, of course. And, and it's, well, it's one of those things when you get to the other side of it, you think, oh, what was I worried about? It wasn't this big deal, but the significance that I put on it was crippling that, you know, and I think most people go through that. It's the, to, to be vulnerable is very difficult, especially in, in this current age. And especially when your entire life, you've defined yourself by the validations you get for that performance. So, you know, Will, oh, you loved your show, your podcast, great. That starts to form that version of who you are. And it's the same as being an actor. Oh, I loved your performance in this. Oh, gee, you're so good. Demo Gamo does this very well. That's intoxicating. And it also helps you to form. But I found that it was just... Um, it wasn't, for me personally, it wasn't satisfying enough. It, it was There was an emptiness and a hollowness that I was constantly seeking more validation or more approval to fill this, this part of me that could never be filled. And I think there's a, that's and a did you feel like almost the more you chase the validation, the more empty you felt of inside it is. because you, there's that part of you that's the real you that also knows what you're doing. And you're like, Oh bro, just, <laughs> can you just not check that Instagram thing? Like, why did you post that? You know, even now I really check myself and I go, did you need to share that? You know, why did you share that? 
was it legitimately because you wanted to share a story or help someone or were you doing it just to get a bit of a dopamine hit, get a bit of a like and, and tap into that other part of you? So that's, I think everyone, it's not, you know, we, we all deal with that every day in our own way, whether you're an actor or not, even at work, people have it. So it's not to demonize it, but I think the more we can be aware of it and not let it control and rule our lives, then we're going to be infinitely more happy. Right. It's, it, it's not about, you know, I mean... The idea that you would entirely be yourself all of the time uh, and that you would entirely tell the truth all of the time is an impractical way to... It's utopian and fanciful. Yeah. No, it's It doesn't right. work. It doesn't. It's not human. We're complex. We're, we're, we are flawed deeply. And the more we can acknowledge that, mm. the, the happier we're going to be. It's like none of us is perfect. And especially at the moment, we're living in a time where we're really upholding morals and social media is this kind of moral police. And that's just, it's a nightmare because none of us are that. We're, we're, we're complicated. And we're devils and angels at the same time. And that's just, we have to accept that. Holding ourselves to a standard that no one could ever satisfy. Exactly. And what you said, I think, is really fascinating, which is the idea of understanding that the act's an act. It doesn't mean that sometimes you, you don't have to act. Like sometimes you do need to act. That's exactly what is appropriate in that situation. <laughs> exactly. yes. But un- understanding that the act that you're doing is an act rather than your true self and being able to separate those things. I, mm. I've become a bit of a, I, I didn't want to become this person, but I have certainly become this person recently because it'll be a few months ago now when people are hearing this, but um, I've taken Facebook and Twitter off my phone. Great. Just took them off my phone, yep. right? So if I want to go to Facebook, if I want to go to Twitter, I have to sit down in front of a computer and I have to actively do it mm-hmm. rather than it just being something that I do if there's five seconds spare and my phone's in front of Love me. It. And it is... It's like a revolution. Yeah. Like for me, that is like going to Peru and taking ayahuasca. It's yeah. taking Facebook and Twitter off my phone. They are similar experiences mm. in how they have changed my mind. My mind has completely changed again. Yeah. It's gone. I'm not as like constantly agitated yeah. as I was. I'm not caught up in things that are none of my business mm-hmm. anymore. I don't have that sort of desire for that concept because I thought that I was reasonably well detached from it. Mm. But when you take it away... And then you suddenly realize, oh, I just feel more relaxed. Yeah. I can concentrate on things more fully. It's, I can enjoy yeah. what I'm doing more. I, I love that you're saying this because I, I've actually heard this a lot lately. And there's quite interesting research around this too of, of how, you know, there's a great book actually called In the Shallows where it talks about how it's actually changing our brain, this constant need of information and checking that phone every five minutes that what's it actually doing, especially if you're a creative type, what's it doing to our imaginations? We're not giving ourselves that time to actually daydream again and stop and be idle and be bored. And there's this great idea that, you know, if Vincent van Gogh came home with his sunflowers, you know, put them on the table with his wife, but got out his phone and trawled his Instagram feed. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Or, 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 or all these great writers, you know, weren't actually taking the time to just sit and look at the flowers and go, wow, that's a, I'm gonna, I might sketch that. If you're checking your Twitter every five minutes and getting information, getting that dopamine hit, what are people saying about me? Keeping this anxiety. Like, what are we doing to our kids? What collectively is happening to our own imaginations? And that's why I made, which we might get to the, the film I just made about 2040, is trying to kickstart people's dreaming and visioning and imagination again. Because I think that's the thing that's going to get, a, get us out of the mess at the moment, is that we're so consumed by culture and it strangles us and it's not our friend. And we, the more we can find time to step away from it and actually dream and think about different worlds we want to create, that's the only way we're going to get there. So we're going to talk about the film and we're going to talk about it in depth because, but I'm going to, I want to talk about a little bit of this stuff first, um, because I think once we start talking about the film and the themes of the film, then that's mm. 
going to be all encompassing. So sure. I feel like I want to cover off uh, some of this and I find you already just so completely fascinating. And, <laughs> you know, you're saying a lot of, you're, mm. you're singing from a hymn book that I'm enjoying very much. So right. I just, I'd like a, a little bit more of the journey of self-discovery. Just tell mm-hmm. me about some of the things that you did along the way that were, you know, interesting. Like you mentioned the silent retreat, for example, like tell me about, you know, how old were you when you did a silent retreat? 10 days, did you say? And what yeah. was that like? So it's called Vipassana and it's mm. sort of a, it's an ancient sort of Indian practice. And I went up to the Blue Mountains in Sydney. I was 27 at the time. And you, you the deal is you sit in meditation for 10 days and you're not allowed to talk. You're, you're in a room with a group of other people, but it's sort of, you know, you're sharing meals with them, but all in silence. Like it's, it's pretty odd at times, but it really like gets, gets you to, to get, get to that layer at a, at a depth that there's no distraction. You're not on your phone. You're not dealing with your day-to-day life. It's just you and that's it. And the confronting element of that is that things that you've pushed down or suppressed maybe since your childhood get a chance to actually come to the surface and you're taking off all those things that are blocking them. So um, probably the first two or three days are really confronting. I mean, everyone has a different experience, but for me it was really tough, especially just the sitting there and being present and wanting to move and wriggle and scream or whatever it is. And you just start to feel all these parts of your body that you haven't felt for a long time. Or I, I certainly felt things like I, I had a, a pain in my hip and on the third or fourth day, there was an attachment or emotion that came with that feeling. So suddenly I had this memory of something in my childhood that was quite strong to me and, and realized or had an epiphany, the sense that I might've even been storing some of the emotion in that particular part of my body. And that had a chance to come out. And I just had this random sort of emotional outburst because I'd been trapping this stuff in my body. So, um, it was quite profound. And then by day six or seven, you're, you're so free and clear in your mind that it is like, you know, for those of us that have taken acid or something, you're very present. And so this was in the Blue Mountains. And I remember just being on my hands and knees, like following some ants for about an hour and a half through the bush. And then because you're just, every breath of wind on your cheek is just like, oh, that's so beautiful. Because you're just, you're, you're pure. There's nothing in the way. And I remember climbing a tree and, and looking out over this escarpment and um, I actually fell out of the tree. It was quite high. And I remember thinking, oh, my back. And I, if, if I hadn't been in this course, I would have really sent all this energy to my back and gone, oh, no, I'm in trouble. I think I've really hurt it. But I was able just to sort of sit and feel it and observe it. And I got up and walked away and there was no problem. So that for me was quite um, an interesting 10 days of really understanding who I am and what drives me and what I'm bearing from my childhood. There's nowhere to run. So it all comes up. And it's not for everyone. It can be really challenging. Um, but I particularly got quite a lot out of that and it set me off on a path to explore more. So in, I imagine when you do something like that and, um, you know, you've, you've mentioned some of the drug stuff. So, uh, you know, we can mm. talk as little or as much about that as we, as we mm. will later on. People who've listened to this podcast before you know, know that like I, I am a believer in the role of psychedelics in understanding, you know, the nature of human consciousness exactly. and these sort of things. Mm-hmm. And uh, I've always said that, uh, you know, if advertisers could harness the power of uh, DMT, because it's the greatest product of all time, because uh, it has an inbuilt advertising component, which is <laughs> once you've done it, you won't stop telling people about how fucking good it is. <laughs> it's, it's, like, <laughs> it's also very the, good with imagery too. It's worst, a visual medium. The yeah. worst side effect of DMT is for the next three months, every time. Dude, dude. dude. <laughs> you don't understand, man. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's I, like a Ponzi scheme, isn't it? It just keeps <laughs> spreading out. like. I used to like find myself 
like yeah. particularly post a couple of experiences that I'd had, like I'd find myself at a party and I'd be about 15 minutes into my rant at someone <laughs> and I'd be like, dude, you, you just got to walk away from this person. You've got to stop telling them about the nature of existence oh, and how no. you're outside your own body and oh, saw your no. own death. And well, but, it's like also people's dreams. It's so hard when someone told oh, this yeah. dream last night. It's like, that's your dream. I yeah. can never understand it. And it's the same with ayahuasca. Everyone yeah. has their own experience and it's like really boring to hear it if it's not you. So let's not necessarily then talk about the experiences themselves, but let's talk about the role of, you're clearly somebody at this point who is on a journey of, you know, self-exploration. Yeah. And that's the context that I often try to put, you know, psychedelics in. It's like, if, if you're somebody who wants to test the limits of your imagination or your, your mind, mm-hmm. it might take the form of going to a 10 day silent you know, meditation retreat, mm-hmm. or it might take the form of, you know, psychedelic experimentation. There's a long history of it. It's, right. it's not about, you know, you know, dropping some acid and no. going to a rave. This is about the exploration of the, the inner self or the inner mind. Yeah. And I think that was, that's a really important point. And, and especially if my first experience of ayahuasca was actually with my wife and we were in the Amazon and it was such a ritual. There was such an intention to it. There was a shaman there and they spent three hours like making the brew. And then we had a discussion about what we wanted to get out of it. It wasn't just on a couch in Bondi in front of the yellow submarine. Yeah. It was, it was, <laughs> you know, like, how do we, you know, which I feel is such a great tragedy yeah. because so many of these psychedelics are, they're lost to the whimsical nature of culture and, and that what they can be is so profound and that we don't, give them the space sometimes to let that happen. So I felt very honored that we were in this particular, you know, in the middle of the bloody Amazon, you know, it didn't get more. And my wife, who was quite reticent and won't mind me talking about it, she was really apprehensive, said, look, I'm happy for you to do it, but I'll just, you know, but we'd spent a week and a half in the, in the Amazon, in this sort of hut that was off grid, just in the middle of nowhere. And just spending time with people that live there, suddenly it didn't, she understood it wasn't that Western perspective of being a drug, that they did refer it to as Dr. Ayahuasca, and it was a medicine. And my wife was like, oh, of course I'm going to do it, because she was immersed in that space. It was all about the jungle and talking to, so she then understood what it was at a deeper level and had quite a profound experience herself. And, and, and we both did, and to even share that together was quite beautiful. Um, and there wasn't anything drug about it. It was actually um, a much more sort of spiritual journey, I guess, for both of us. So where are you at in the exploration of sort of your, yourself at this Mm -hmm. point then? Because you talk about starting it in your mid twenties, you talk about the changes that have happened in your life since that sort of, Mm. you know, starting your self exploration, where would you say that you're at at the moment in your journey of self discovery? Yeah, I think, um, or self knowledge or whatever you want to, I think to a degree, you know, it it, it is a constant, even Mm. our conversation now, I mean, I love these chats as well because you, you you know, you're constantly learning about yourself with any interaction if you're open to that. But I feel like what happened probably in my early thirties is that I started to shift that focus off myself. I felt quite comfortable understanding where I was at and what it allowed me is then to go bigger picture and say, okay, I feel good about this. What can I do now to contribute in a larger sense? Like how can I use this newfound whatever you want to call it, understanding, knowledge, power to actually help people at a larger level. I think that's what really kickstarted me into making my own films and telling my own stories is that I felt compelled to do that almost to say, I want to share what I've got here and I know it's possible for so many other people. Uh, How can I use this in the best possible way to help others? Okay. So... I think we're going to have to sit down another time and have another co- a, a longer and fuller conversation around that. But I do want to talk to you about mm-hmm. the, the the most recent p- 
piece of work. Mm. Um, but there's a premise to this uh, podcast, which is I ask people if they have a philosophy. So I'll ask you that first mm. and then we'll, um, you know, we'll jump into the film and then we'll, uh, you know, see what happens after that. Yeah. I mean, I guess I've probably outlined some of that f- philosophy uh, through that exploration. I think I've realized that my philo- philosophy is probably that this is a bit of an illusion that we're living in some kind of um, illusory state and that there is a version of us that plays out much like a, you know, searching the net. There's a version of website you bring up, which is you, but behind that there is something deeper and bigger. So my philosophy probably is that all of us have that. We're born like that as children, that there is a very creative, powerful, beautiful human being inside all of us. But then we, we build up all sorts of stuff and nonsense along the way that clouds the purity and the beautiful aspect of that person. So I feel, um, yeah, I, I want to, I, I treat every human being like they still have that part of them, that it's, it's like there is a diamond there, but it's been covered in dust, but that diamond's still in there. And I think, um, I try and spread that, I guess, to a degree. Okay. Now this is where uh, it, that's great, by the way, you are a very lovely person to talk to. And, uh, this is absolutely great fun. And I can't believe we're having this conversation at Triple M where a conversation like this has never happened before and will probably never happen again. I love it. There's, we should there's be cricket talking, on the background. Yeah. There's the morning show in the background. Yeah. It's just wonderful. We should be talking yeah. about rock sport and comedy, but anyway, we're yeah. talking about rock sport and ayahuasca. So, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, now, the future of the planet on which mm. we live, that's <laughs> yes. what it brings us to. Because you know what I, I, I dig about this project that I'm going to get you to talk to, talk about, but I'm going to say up front what I dig about it, because I think that I've found myself to be increasingly fatalistic or negative about the destruction uh, that you know, human beings have done to this planet and, you know, the impending doom and it seems like our world you know, ignorance or, you know, deliberate ignorance or whatever it is, you know, about the future and fate of, you know, humankind and the planet itself. Uh, but you ha- have made something that has a little bit of a different perspective on that. So tell people what it is first, and then we can talk about it. Well, I think a good segue out of what we were just talking about is, is one of the great sort of bards of, of the psychedelic movement. It was a guy named Terence McKenna, for those people that don't know. And he had a beautiful quote, that said that the role of the artist is to save the soul of mankind and anything else is a dithering while Rome burns. If the artist can't find the way, then the way can't be found. And I use that as a bit of a launch pad to say, well, we know that the, that the news we're getting about our planet is dire. Every single day there's a, there's a torrent about some kind of horrific thing, whether it's species loss or climate change or losing soils, whatever it might be. But I spoke to an environmental psychologist really early on in researching this project. And she said, when we receive that information constantly that comes with dread or fear or anxiety, it activates a part of our brain called the limbic system. And when that limbic system is activated, it shuts down the prefrontal cortex. And the prefrontal cortex is where we problem solve and we think creatively. So if we are constantly receiving this negative information, a majority of us are are paralyzed by the information. We don't know what to do about it. It's too intangible. It's too existential. So it's easy just to bury your head in the sand, get on with it, enjoy your football game and look, we'll sort it out down the track. So I thought, well, what's, what we perhaps need, perhaps there's room for is a different narrative that focuses on the solutions to some of these problems. So the project I've done is called 2040. It's a letter to my daughter who's now five. And it says, what would the world look like in 2040 if we simply put into practice the best solutions that already exist today? So I call it an exercise in fact-based dreaming. Anything I show her in the future has to exist right now. It's an extrapolation of what we already have. And that was probably the most profound realization of, of making the film over three years was that 
we've got everything we need. It's all there. We can do it. It's just whether we have the motivation, the political will, all these other factors. But I think it's important at a time where there is a nihilistic narrative emerging that people know it is possible. We can actually turn this around. We can reverse it, not just mitigate climate change. We can actually reverse it. Whether we do is the biggest question of all. But I think it's important as a first step that people know it is possible because any psychology textbook will tell you that humans are guided by the possibility of a better outcome or a better future. It's Viktor Frankl's work. It's man's search for meaning. We're motivated by a hopeful vision of a better future. And we all want that for our kids, for the planet we're on. But at the moment, we're just getting bombarded by the opposite narrative. So I was writing some stuff about uh, climate change for a stand-up show that I was doing. And I made the mistake of uh, reading the IPCC report into climate change. And Mm. uh, as I've said to everybody since, do not recommend. You've seen you've seen the key messages out of it. I do not recommend sitting down with the entire thing, but I I did, yeah. and I followed all the references and I read all the links. And well no, yeah. no, I wish I had not yeah. because it has stayed with me. You know, like I mean, because when you read the science or what the you know the predictors are of what the damage that we've done and the damage that we are continuing to do and what we need to do, but we are not doing to assess that damage. It was, I I turned into a, a, you know, a teenage emo again. I was just like, you know, I might as well have been reading, you know, Nick Cave lyrics alone in my bedroom, all dressed in black, you know, putting on eyeliner. Has he done a climate change song yet? He probably, probably will. Yeah. (laughs) Murder of the planet ballads. And so it was, I was going to go and live in a Nick Cave. I was, it it was devastating to me. And I, I struggled to move from that state of acknowledging Mm. what the problem was Mm. to moving to a state of how do we find the solution? Exactly what you're talking about. This is what started the entire, I felt exactly the same with you. I had a two-year-old daughter at the time and thought, how the hell? Well, that's the one for me. So kids, like to the point where I say to people, how do you bring a kid into this world? So you Mm. are a practical example of this. You Mm. have a child, Mm -hmm. you're a smart person, you understand Mm -hmm. what's going on, and you've decided to have a child. Talk me through, yes, Mm. what you're about to say, how that informs the project that you're doing. Yeah, it exactly happened. I had exactly the same sense of that you did, this sense of overwhelm of like, how the hell am I going to articulate this to my daughter? How do we even say define when you're trying to give a sense that humans are good and that I do believe they're good, but we've done this and this is what we're doing to the planet. So really that's what motivated. I spent a year researching. I spoke to almost a hundred different academics and scientists around the world saying, are there things we can do? Because not only to my daughter, I want to have, be able to have that conversation and say, yeah, you know what? Things are bad and we need to own that and feel it in its authenticity. Not enough of our leaders are doing that, but in the next breath say, but you know what? I've met these people that are so wonderful, that deeply care about your future. And you know what? They've already come up with these solutions that we can turn this around. It's not going to be easy. It might be messy. It might be clunky, but actually history has so many references of how we've been faced with enormous challenges like this. Small groups of people have, and you know what? They found a way to get through it because they knew and they believed and they focused on the good things that were happening. And that, I feel that genuinely now, three years later, we would have had a different conversation three years ago. But I feel like when you spend so much of your time not on Twitter, which again reflects back a pretty unattractive vision of us in the world, when you do focus on the solutions, on the people that care, on the councils that are doing things around the world, on these climate strikers, Greta Thunberg, all these kids around the world, it's hard not to feel buoyant about what's going on and optimistic. Because I do think we're in the middle of a transition phase that we will look back on 
in the same way we look at Rosa Parks, in the same way we look back at the abolitionists who 60 years before slavery ended, everyone derided them and said, this is a utopian fantasy. No economy can survive without slaves. If we give up our slaves, another economy will thrive with their slaves. Look what happened to there. Look what happened to the suffragettes. Look what happened to interracial marriage in, in America. There's so much precedent for how great change has happened. And look now, the UK has just declared a climate emergency. Sydney yesterday declared a climate emergency. There's 21 councils in the country that are doing that. There's countries saying committing to zero renewables by 2030, 2040. There is enormous momentum. But if you just focus on the mainstream stories, you do want to go and move to a cave because it's so overwhelming. But this is, again, Rebecca Solnit talks about in her book, Hope in the Dark, is that the hope isn't on the main stage where all the media is focused on. You've got to go into the shadows, just in the wings of the stage, and that's where the flurry of activity is happening. That's where all the great things are happening. So the film is trying to just shove that spotlight over to those shadows and say, look at these legends. They actually know what they're doing. Let's stop focusing on the fucking royal baby. Let's stop focusing on twi- the tweets of a, of a rampant narcissistic president. Let's look at all these legends that are actually trying to solve and save the planet because there's millions of them. We're just not aware of them. And I think the more that we can bring them into the mainstream, the better chance we have of them being joined by people that care and want to take action. We're not motivated by doom and gloom. We shut down. We get scared. When we're offered solutions and things we can enact on, we've got a much better chance of of joining in and getting involved. Okay. So you've touched on it, but why do you think, what is the major barrier uh, you know, to get these stories from the dark into the Mm -hmm. light, into the mainstream? Well, yeah, there's a quite, a quite an incredible book by a New York Times journalist named Jane Mayer. It's called Dark Money, and she tracks, I guess, the battle of storytelling that's particularly happened in America, and we cover it in the film as well, that the vested interests now spend almost a billion dollars a year on climate denial and propaganda. They're heavily in- influenced at a policy level, both here and in different countries around the world, that they've been very good at telling their version of the story. And we have the same problem here. With our, our recent election is a great example of that. It was a failure of storytelling, of actually selling the solutions to this problem in a way that says, you know what, we can strengthen your communities. We can give you jobs and security. There's, there's 14 new solar projects approved within 400 Ks of Townsville right now, 5,000 jobs. No one knows about that story. All we've heard about is Adani and their jobs. So that's a, that's a battle of stories. And unfortunately, we're up against, you know, certain forces like Clive's got $80 million. Um, you know, Murdoch's got a very powerful hold in Queensland. They are shaping a narrative about our future and what is. And, and I think that's, again, why I made the film is that we've got to alert people to that's what's been going on. And these guys have done it really well. In particular, they've done it very well in America. And we looked at it in the sugar film. We looked at it in, in tobacco. It's the similar playbook. And they're very good at shaping cultural values, opinions on this topic, uh, the denial, that's all part of their tactic is that the more they can give a sense of denial, they'll delay action. Because if people are ambiguous on a topic, then they won't commit to it. A government won't commit to it. But I've spoken to coal companies, to oil companies. They're, they're actually self-imposing carbon taxes on some of them because they know the government's not going to do it. So they're doing it themselves because they know the transition's going to happen. So they're taking out bits of their money, investing it in renewables and other sources. They're doing it themselves. I mean, that's shows how broken the system is or how badly the story is being told from a progressive point of view. And I think, again, that's why we need storytellers, artists, filmmakers, comedians, songwriters, whatever it is, to get involved in telling different stories about what kind of future we want. Um, How do you, so if you don't mind me asking this, and I only ask it to put it in perspective, Mm. like what was the budget of making your film? $3 million. So you've got $3 million to get your message out. Correct. 
And Clive Farmer spends eight, drops eighty on an election That's where right. he doesn't win a seat. That's but right. just to and make the a Greens point, spent three hundred grand on their campaign. So how do you, in a world where those are the numbers, where yeah. the where the Koch brothers in the US right. can spend billions of dollars mm-hmm. you know, on their messaging, mm-hmm. but you know it's harder for the other side to yep. you know compete in that same arena? How do you get those messages? How do you compete with that mass media yep. message? Well, look, I mean. I guess one of the, the, the sort of sad things about making this film was realizing, um, and this is certainly not a criticism, it, it, but, but how disparate a lot of the uh, environmental groups have been. So if you look at the Koch brothers, you look at sort of more far right leaning, they're very, they're very aligned on their message and they just get it done. Whereas the amount of sort of bickering and infighting and, you know, there's no collaboration from the progressive sometimes. And I think also this rise of identity politics, politics is, is sabotaging the left as well, really badly. And, and I've even mm. copped it with a film. A couple of people have written and said, you know, like, mm. oh, gee whiz, it was just, everyone was white in your film and you didn't. And I think, well, that's not true actually, but you're seeing it through a lens, but can't you see that I'm trying to create, but you can't see that because you're only seeing so. So yeah. I think well, that's, that's, that's a, one of the great advantages the right have over the left <laughs> is that left are much more willing to eat their own. Correct. You know, exactly. whereas the right are much more willing to go, well, they might be racist, but they agree with tax cuts with us. So <laughs> I'm willing to go with the racists. Exactly. So I think that, and what, what's interesting since the film is, is even the, the amazing amount of sort of screenings that are going on behind the scenes, whether it's with um, governments or with corporations and whatnot. And there is this sense of people getting, well, we actually need to find a way to come together uh, if we're going to get through this, because we are actually more powerful in our numbers and there are more of us that want a better future like this. And we're up against a really tiny, concentrated, but powerful and slightly psychopathic group of people that are doing a very good job. If we don't sort our shit out and get together, this isn't going to happen. And it's funny in Jane Meyer's book, she talks about after Obama won in America, that the Koch brothers actually called a meeting together in Denver of all the leading right wing donors and said, this is our moment. Progressive politics may win forever here. If we don't intervene right now, we've got to double down and, and work harder than we ever have put in millions, if not billions of dollars to really fund the next campaigns. And they've done a great job. And here we are right now. And it'd be hard to argue that they haven't won that particular battle. So I think it's important that we also realize that that's what we're up against. It's not a conspiracy. It's just a, a battle of storytelling. Uh, I understand some of their perspectives. I get it, especially the Koch brothers. You can see why they were raised by a nanny who was a, in Hitler. Their dad sold um, oil to Stalin. They hated government. Of course you would if you worked under Stalin. So that's why they're really adamant that it's all about the free market. But I think we've got our lessons that the market isn't going to solve this. It didn't solve the the GFC. It's not solving climate change. We need to put some kind of boundaries on. Um, Otherwise, we're just going to destroy ourselves and the planet. Okay. I want to put two things I want to focus on just out of that, which Mm -hmm. is one, we'll come back to the role of the market because I think that's a pretty important thing to talk about. Mm -hmm. Um, But I want to just back back on the identity politics stuff because I think that the, you know, when we talk about identity politics and when we talk about the left eating itself or progressives, you know, out progressiving each other or, you know, the cancel culture and these sort of things. Mm. I don't, I don't want to deny the good of it because of the worst of it. So for example, I think that it's legitimate for us to have these conversations. I think it's legitimate for us to be going, are there enough women involved in this project? Is there enough, you know, people, people of color involved in this? These are all good things to be asking and constantly having the conversation. But if we use them as ways to essentially destroy each other so that the other side doesn't even need to bother Mm -hmm. playing that game, then yeah, you eventually you're, you're hurting yourself rather than, so I, I feel like it's worth 
you know, like us acknowledging that I think these are all great conversations to be having. And I think they're all genuinely legitimate points to be being made. And I think that we've got to get better at giving criticism and accepting criticism, you know, on the progressive side of things, I think. Yeah. And meeting each other halfway in the spirit of I'll take it better and you give it better and we'll, we'll, we'll work through it together. Is that yeah, a legitimate thing to say? A hundred percent. And I think it comes down to listening. I think we just got to get better at listening. That, that's the only way we're going to get through this is actually trying to understand where someone's coming from, no matter what side they're on. And, and again, that was a big emphasis of making the film. And I think that's probably why I reacted in particular to this comment is because we spent so much time saying, right, have we got an, a, a, the right number of voices here, female? Is there enough diversity represented here? Yet we went to Tanzania, we've done Bangladesh, all these voices from around the world. It's not just my white man's vision of 2040. As you saw in the film, we consult 110 kids around the world from different countries so that it's their vision of the future. So I guess when this stuff came up, I thought, oh, don't, no, 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 there's, there's these extreme versions of that. And that is, that is counterproductive because, you know, there's a bigger intention here at play. It's not about that, and this is what I guess pushes people to the right sometimes is they get, they get exasperated by it and they think, well, I am trying to do the right thing, but you're completely cutting me down by seeing it through this lens. And I think it's just a hot mess at the moment. And I think the more we can actually understand someone because it's valid. A lot of these people are saying these things because they're deeply hurt and they're in pain and they haven't been understood or heard. So here's the time to actually understand them and not deride them for them or, or say, go away. It's like, okay, I, I get where this is coming from. And I love that you said that on both sides, because I think this is. is the major failing that we have in general, which is, yep. you know, something like the Australian election happens mm. and I see people and people I like. And, but you know, mm. but yeah, lashing out and saying that, you know, oh, you know, all Australians are racist and that's what the election says. Like it's often people will diagnose the sort of the, they won't look at actually what the real cause of, they won't take the time to listen to somebody about what it was that they were concerned Spot about. Spot on. You and know? I, yeah. It was that post-election, the sort of the, the anti-Queensland narrative, which I just thought was just such nonsense because... To say these people don't care about their mm. kids or the future, it's just ridiculous. Yeah. What they got scared of was their, their livelihood and their security. And that's where, again, it comes down to storytelling. How do we articulate these messages to say, no, no, you what? You can be better off and we can have a better planet, but you can also survive and make money. Do you know there's a system that's working against you at the moment? Here's a different version, but you're going to be better off. Instead of deriding them, instead of marching into their towns and saying, you need to stop and you're killing the planet. No one responds well to that. No. So that, that's the lessons we've got to get. And we actually went down to the Latrobe Valley and, and interviewed a lot of the sort of the coal miners there and talked about their transition and how that happened. And just to hear how articulate they were about climate change and how much they care about what they're doing, but also saying, what do we do? I've, I've done this job my whole life. My father did it. His father did it. We've actually powered and created all these wonderful things. We, we were the backbone of this economy in this country. And now we're getting absolutely derided for it in the now blink, we're blink of an monsters. eye. Correct. And that's just, that's not the human. Mm. And I think, again, we've just, we haven't communicated this at a human level and that's not the fault of scientists, but we've often, I think, left scientists to communicate some of this stuff. And it's not their remit. It's, it's hard to connect to words like anthropogenic, negative emissions. And it's, we need to bring the human back in and actually talk to people about things they value, which is security, shelter, their livelihood, their kids, and keep it really simple and keep it out of that political spectrum. And, and that's what we try to do with 2040. And I take it as a compliment that a couple of people have said, gee, it's quite a neoconservative view of the world. I think that's a win because it doesn't cr- come across as a ranting lefty sort of film. It's like, no, this is an issue for all of us. And, and climate change was a deeply conservative value 35 years ago. Margaret Thatcher stood up at the UN and said, this is the most important issue we're ever going to face. 
George Bush Sr., three months later, said exactly the same thing, a Republican president, saying we, ne- we are custodians of the land and climate change is the most important thing we need to address. Like, yeah. By making it a political issue, it actually stands in the way of us doing something about it. 100%. We've got, it's got to be one of those things that everybody agrees is an issue and you can debate then yep. you know, one side of politics or the other yep. over what the you know, right solutions are. Yep. But you've got to get every – you can't make it one of those things that one side believes in it and one side doesn't no. believe in it or you're fucked. That's right. It's, like the, fucked. it's like the ozone layer. It's exactly yep. what happened with the ozone layer. It wasn't a political issue. It mm. was a hole in the ozone layer. Well. Let's stop those particular <laughs> gases. Great. We did it. Great. Move on. <laughs> Very simple. Yeah. This is like the fate of our fucking planet. You know, like this is our home. It's our only home. It's a future for our kids. It shouldn't be political. It's clean air. It's clean water. It's the food we eat. That's non-negotiable. That's not political territory from my point of view, but sadly it's, it's become that. Uh, yeah. For me, there was a massive turning point around when Australia, you know, because of the mining industry, and let's be honest, mm-hmm. that's why it was, you know, survived the global financial crisis in a way that no other country really did. Well, no Western country did, not you know, the case. only Western country that didn't go into, you know, a recession during the global financial crisis. And at that time, what we did as a country is we decided, okay, well, this is what has got us through this. We're going to double down on this being what we're about. Instead of, at the time, which would have, in my opinion, been the thing to do, going, we have all this money now, like all this spare money. Uh, Let's use that money to transition from this mining industry to the next mining industry, which is going to be the wind and the sun. And, you know, like particularly Australia. Australia, where essentially solar was invented in Australia, Australia, where the conditions you need for wind and solar are said, you know, a wind and sun <laughs> and you know, an empty space. That's right. And like we have a big hole in the middle of this country <laughs> that is just wind and sun and empty space. Like it seemed like an absolute no brainer. Yeah. But then what happened was the market got in the way of this. And you mentioned the role of the market and how capitalism isn't going to solve this problem. The free market isn't going to solve this problem by itself. So talk to me a little bit about that. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's a big one. It's a complex one. But I think there were just certain, we sort of went from this very centralized government control and we sort of, instead of finding a happy medium, we flipped completely 180 to give way too much power to corporations. Not, not to say that corporations are inherently evil. There's no problem there. But just the structures which, with which they operate aren't conducive to us getting out of this mess. And so one of the clear examples uh, we talk about, I, didn't, I took it out of the film, but Um, we we consume about 80 or 90 billion metric tons of resources every year right now. Now, that's logging, minerals, metals, fishing, things like that. The sustainable level is 50 billion. So almost double what the earth can replenish at the moment. And at our current growth rates, 2 to 3%, we're projected to consume 150 billion metric tons by 2050. So that almost wipes out most living things on the planet. Yet no one's having that conversation. We're so obsessed with growth and it's held up as this sort of almost religious fervor. If any... Uh, leader goes into recession, it's an absolute crisis. So the, the, the GDP of the planet's about $80 trillion a year. Growth, 2 or 3% a year. Again, it's about $2.5, 3000000000000 dollars a year. That's the equivalent GDP of the UK. So every year, we're putting a UK's worth of resources onto the planet. Now, that's just a simple logic, a mathematical problem that is impossible. It's a disaster. Yet no one's having that conversation because there's no, there's a fear of regulating these, these, these corporations or reining them in. Yet we need to put in boundaries. Otherwise we're going to destroy ourselves. And I think we're seeing, and again, we talk about in the film, this Kate Rayworth, it's his donut economics, which is a model for that, says that if we reach these points where we're starting to destroy our soil, which we already are to many, to many chemicals, if we're destroying the fish populations, 13 of 17 are now collapsed. An alarm should go off and say, 
we're about to go over the edge here and, and die. Like we need, we need to put some boundaries. And the same I'd say socially. Why wasn't, why wasn't there a sign? Oh, there was. There was, <laughs> there was like every right. day there was a sign. That's right. And the yeah. same goes socially. What levels of inequality are we willing to deal with before it starts to destabilize? And, and you could argue it's already destabilizing society. So it's not to say that these things aren't, are inherently bad or that profits are terrible. It's just that we need to have some, like a toddler, you need to have some kind of safety net that protects us. And we just don't have those at the moment. And I think not only that, we have rules that really favor corporations. So again, we looked at one, I took it out of the film, but it's called an ISDS clause that most people have no idea about an investor state dispute settlement. And it gives the power of corporations to sue governments if they breach or impact their ability to make profit. So there's countless examples around the world where a coal fire power plants built on the banks of a river, say in Germany, and the government's environmental authority go and check out the, the project and say, you know what? Your, your wastewaters are going to kill the fish in this river. So I'm sorry, you can't build this. They get sued by the corporation for $1.4 billion. So the government backs down because they can't pay that money or counter sue. And so the coal fired power station gets built. And what do you know? Their wastewater is now going to the river and the fish are dying. So unless we start addressing those rules of the game, then things aren't going to change. And it's not to say again, that we can't have corporations and innovation and ingenuity. That's really important. We don't want top-down government systems again, but we just need to have some sensible, common-sense boundaries that say, right, as a society, what do we govern and what do we determine as that's safe? How do we want to protect things that we value, not just money, this narrow metric of money that we measure, GDP? That's not who we are. Like, what are these other things we value around environmental vitality, communities, psychological well-being, time use, whatever it might be? If we don't start bringing them and making them more visible as metrics, I don't think we're going to get through this. If we keep valuing it only on money, we're going to destroy ourselves. So measurement as a measurement being a problem in of itself. Correct. And then I actually, a great pleasure of, of, I spent 10 days um, in Bhutan recently and they have a, they have a gross Gross national national happiness. happiness. That's right. And so I went and spent time with them and, and watched them make decisions in their government. And so every policy is run through this lens of nine pillars that benefit their society. And they were talking about a mining tax actually when we were there or a mining policy. And they decided to knock back the mining policy on the grounds of what they called intergenerational equity. So they said that, you know what, we've reached a point now with our mining where it's starting to eat into the resources of future generations. So we need to stop now, you know, and just to even see that that was happening was, it felt like being on another planet. But again, they were saying as humans, we value so many more things than money. So any policy has to be, you know, considered in terms of how it impacts community or psychological or gender equality, whatever it might be. And you can just feel the way they built their society there, the way a school's built, a way you walk around it. And when it's built from that essence and that foundation, it just has a different quality to it. It isn't just whacked up quickly because it's cheap and it's going to make money and, 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 and boost GDP. It's no, it's built with values and ethics and a different level and deeper understanding of what aligns with us. And I just feel like that's a that would be a great transition to whatever it is we're going to end up creating next, whatever our next system might be. Who knows? It might still be capitalism. It might still be a form of that. We don't know. We all need to make that decision together. But as a, as a stepping stone to get there, I think measuring and, and bringing up new metrics to, to strive for, because we'll only strive for the things that we value. At the moment, it's only GDP. So why not make companies try and strive for these other measurements and bring them more into the mainstream?
Yeah, uh, it's always that, uh, you know, argument around, you know, we're going to get the budget back in the black, which basically just means the government's taken more money from us than they're spending back on us. You know, like it, it's a weird way of measuring things. And I think that what you're saying, when you look at that, you know, gross national happiness, it would help address some of those things that you are saying. Because I, I grew up, you know, in Hayfield. It's a timber town down in uh, country Victoria. Latrobe Valley's right near where, you know, I was. Would have to drive through it to get to Melbourne. So that's my part of the world. That's still where my family is. I understand that part of the world. And if we were thinking about it properly in a gross national happiness way, we would have said, okay, we do need to shut down this industry or we do need to transition out of this. But our first thought would have been about the workers in that industry. Our first thought would have been, okay, in five years, we're going to shut down these coal power plants. How in those five years are we going to make sure that these people are retrained in a way and not just thrown out on the street and go, I know you did this all your life and now you have to do this, but go, Mm -hmm. okay, how can we transition this person who was an engineer in a coal power plant to give them the training to be an engineer in the solar power plant? I mean, surely you can do it right. if you think or care and then the ripple effects of that you don't get that angst in the community that then spills over in other areas you, you're nurturing people you're actually treating them as human beings and they'll respond like a human being and then you see how that impacts all of society but if you're just treating people like they're commodities then they're going to react the way they are they're going to get angry they're going to start robbing they're going to start bashing things taking more drugs because they're neglected and they're angry. And that's what we're seeing right around the world. That's what Trump is. It was a people trying to reclaim their power again because they feel like, you know what? It's been stripped from me. It's not even in my country anymore. It's some corporation that's running in a global, I have no control anymore. So I want to vote for the strong man, the authoritarian that's going to come back in, nationalize again, get back the military pride and give us power again. Yep. I'm going to vote for him. And that's why we're seeing that lean to the right everywhere because people are wanting to feel empowered. And when we're not empowered, as we know in our own um, self-discovery, you start to feel listless and a bit anxious. And we all want stability as a feeling. And sometimes when you don't feel like there are solutions, being told that it's not a problem in the first place gives you some comfort. You know, I I talked about it in my stand-up show a bit, was like, I hope more than anything in the world that the scientists are wrong and Andrew Bolt is right, you know? <laughs> like, <laughs> That's right. Because that is actually the best possible scenario. It is. That it's <laughs> not happening, you know, <laughs> that it's right. all conspiracy by the scientists oh, to get shit, rich yeah. or whatever it is. And but, I, I bought into, I drank that Kool-Aid mm. for a long time as well because it was for that reason. It was easier mm. to go, well, actually, I'm not sure that it's quite real yet because then I didn't have to do anything about it. Yeah. I was not responsible. I could keep burying my head in the sand. And I guess when you have kids, that sort of starts to change a bit. But yeah, I can categorically say that of the things I've experienced and seen now, there's just no, no doubt at, at all that it's happening. Uh, so tell me this then, uh, you know, this story is more positive than that, or at least you're trying to shine a light on, you know, the way forward that could be positive. Mm. Uh, what do you think, um, is the most, uh, comforting or positive thing you discovered in making this film? Yeah, so the, I think the, the, the story that's out there is, that can be confusing for people about climate change is they think that if we just go to electric cars and switch to renewable energy, that's it. Like, we're fine. But the reality is if we even did that tomorrow, we would still have ourselves locked into probably three or 400 years of warming, warming because of the carbon and other greenhouse gases that are already in the atmosphere. So we also need to find ways to pull them out or draw down or sequester them out of the atmosphere. And I guess some of the solutions around that were probably the most exciting I found that I think there's a narrative at the moment emerging that we're going to need to build these giant carbon sucking machines on the edge of our cities, almost like vacuum cleaners that are going to pull out the carbon, which again approaches it from a very mechanistic sort of reductionist way. But the solutions I found for that were so wonderful because they have these cascading benefits. So the big problem at the moment um, is our soils. So for example, the UN says we have about 60 years of topsoil left. We've been mining the soil of carbon. 
um, when the first settlers arrived in Iowa, the soil was about 16 feet deep. It's now about 10 centimetres because we've just constantly tilled and ploughed and soil. And when we do that, it puts carbon into the atmosphere. So that's also a contributor to climate change. So what these farmers around the world now are doing is finding ways to pull that carbon out of the atmosphere where it's doing its damage and put it back in the soil. And once you put it back in the soil, you get this raft of cascading benefits around health and quality of the food. So for example, even uh, minerals and nutrients. Uh, if you uh, Oranges is a great example. You have to eat eight oranges today to get the same level of vitamin A that you got from one orange 60 years ago because of the health of the soil. So it's a no-brainer that we would put the carbon back in the soil for that reason. But also the water retention, especially around a climate and, and the drought that we're facing, that for every one centimetre of carbon that you add to 30 centimetres of soil, it uh, increases the water holding capacity of that soil by 166,000 litres per hectare. So it becomes almost like a, an irrigation system that holds the water. So instead of it just running off into creeks and taking all the chemicals with it, and that's why the reef's getting trashed, This, when you put that carbon back in the soil, it absorbs. So it's a no-brainer. We should do it anyway because we're improving our soils and our food, but the bonus is that it's also taking carbon out of the atmosphere. And the other one of those was seaweed, which again was just a massive shock to me that seaweed is the fastest growing organism on the planet. It grows half a metre a day. And because it's growing so quickly, it's turbocharged, pulling that carbon out of the atmosphere. But at the same time, it's regenerating our oceans. It's taking the, um, it's alkalizing the water, the fish are able to plant their eggs in the seaweed. So that kickstarts all that ecosystem there. Uh, it's a great food source. We can use it as fibers in our clothes, as plastics. Like it's just, again, these have a raft of cascading benefits while at the same time they're restoring ecosystems and pulling the carbon out of the atmosphere. So those two things, I just thought, wow, they're natural solutions. They're not big Silicon Valley tech fixes. Um, we might need some of those, that's for sure. But we've got these beautiful nature they've given us all the things we need. We just have to get out of the way and let them start to regenerate and the earth will turn itself around. And I think that was a big takeaway from the film is that a lot of the way we, we solve this is not by constant interference and, and projecting our own hubris into it. It's actually getting out the way and taking a step back and learning and listening and being a bit quieter and actually letting nature do its thing and repair itself. How many hurdles were in the way we know about all the hurdles that are in the way, uh, you know, in, in our society from these messages getting out there, mm -hmm. how many hurdles were in your way making this film? Because, you know, uh, there are a bunch of vested interests that have no desire for this message to be out there, to be honest. Mm. And so I imagine, and look, you've done it with the, the sugar film as well. Like, you know, there, there are, vested interest. But when it comes to the planet, it's so weird, this one, because it feels like something that, you know, we should, it is the place where we all live, yeah. right? It's, it's going to affect all of us. Mm. It doesn't just affect poor people, although poor people will be affected by it first and more disproportionately, you know, and mm. all those sort of things, but it, it will affect every single person eventually. And it's certainly, if you want to have kids or grandkids and, mm. you know, future generations, if you feel any responsibility as a human being for anyone other than yourself, then, you know, the planet that gives us life, you know, mm. um, even David Attenborough, I spoke about this in my stand up show, but the fact that David Attenborough, who for all these years always had a policy in the films that he made that he would never editorialize, that he just presented these films. And then he finally broke that because he felt like this was so important. And I remember seeing it and he said, if we care so little about the planet that gives us life, you know, if we care so little about the planet that gives us life, that even just that sentence, right? 
So we should all have an interest in this, but there are so many hurdles and blocks and in the way. So what have you experienced in your journey as a mm. filmmaker? Which ones have you experienced? I guess it might be surprised you, but the, it's been oppo the opposite actually, is mm. that especially now the film's out, you know, the amount of corporations that have asked to see it, even energy corporations, and you, you realize, and it sounds obvious, but you go in there and they're all human beings. Right. And they're again, trying to survive and feed their kids and they're in a system and they go, how are we going to transition? We've got all this infrastructure. We've got billions in pipes and all sorts of things. We know this is happening, but how do we transition? Now that's not to say invariably there's one or two within that company that are a little bit more, you know, psychopathic in their nature and they're willing, they don't really care. They don't have that empathy. I've certainly met those people as well. And, and when you see them, they, they do send a shiver through your spine because you think you just don't care. You're just happy just to grow and grow. But the majority, I'd say 99% of people that I've met deeply care about this issue, even if they're entrenched in that system. And that's where I have huge faith and hope. And again, it comes back to our early point of believing in human beings. There is a, a small group of people that are causing problem, but the majority of us do care. And these people do care and they, they're worried about the job they're in and how they're going to transition. I had it last night. I spoke to a group actually, and it was quite, they're an energy company and the conversations after are all about that. What do we do? What can, what are our options? What could we transition to? Cause they all know it's coming. And I think it's important for us to remember that. And especially when you're on social media and it's very easy to deride the coal miner somewhere or the guy who's really pro Adani, like to understand that they're coming from a different, they're still a human being, but they're coming from a need where they need to look after their family or protect or nurture, but to actually see the human being in them instead of the representative of the, of the fossil fuel industry. And that's really tough sometimes, especially when they're going, Oh, you greeny lefty wanker or whatever it is, you <laughs> snowflake, and he, oh, you want to just fire back. But no, it's like, I, you know, I've, and I've spoken to a lot of those people and they care as much about the future in the world that I do. They just go about it in a slightly different way. They have a different angle. They're not as, um, they don't maybe sometimes get the depth of what is going on. They don't understand the urgency because it hasn't been communicated to them or they haven't read the things that you and I might've read. So I think it's important again, and it feels like we're coming full circle, but that just the human, the more we can listen humanize. That's how we're going to get out of this. And in fact, I think it's an opportunity. It's calling us to do that. We've been so separated. We're so hyper individualized. Now we're in our own little silos. We've got our own little broadcast stations. But what this is, is saying, you're not going to solve this unless you actually get back to a sense of community again and finding a way to solve this together. You're not going to do it shouting on your own. Here's the challenge. And if you don't take it, then we all know where you're going to end up. But if you do take it, there is a much better world waiting for you. Well, I like a full circle because, you know, it's helpful for a podcast to bring something full circle. So, Especially at 59 minutes yeah, and 58 seconds. No, it's done well. But I, I, there's, <laughs> so I, it's called 2040. Yeah. Uh, is it out? Where, where can people see yeah, it? When, so like, what's the best way for people to be able to see it? And depends access when, it? when this is coming out. So as we speak Well, you tell right me now, and then we'll work it out. Yeah. So it's um, on cinemas right now. So it's been in almost a hundred cinemas around the country and uh, we're about to release it so that you can show it at your school, your workplace, in your community. You can put on, host your own screening uh, and then it'll be on all sorts of online platforms in the next couple of months as well. And then we sort of release it around the world uh, later this year. How has it changed you personally? My own actions? Yeah. Uh, it's a good question. I think um, I'm certainly more aware of, of certain things around food and what I eat, uh, particular food waste. That's a big one. It's actually more important than reducing our meat consumption. The food waste, if it was a country, would be the third biggest emitter of greenhouse gases in the world. So I finish everything. Um, I bought an electric bike, which I ride to work sometimes. Uh, and I guess that's sort of the surface stuff. But at a deeper level, I think I'm just trying to make sure my daughter 
is instilled with, because I think it comes down to mat- metaphors and meaning. And if we have meaning for something, then we're more inclined to fight for it and defend it. So I'm making sure my, my daughter really values nature and understands how important it is and how magical it is. And I want her to retain that because I think if we can do that with our kids, then they're more inclined to actually want to look after it. And I think a lot of us as adults have, have had that separation and we don't see the meaning or the value to it anymore. We see it as a resource or something that we just extract from. Whereas if you go pre-scientific revolution, all these cultures used language that was custodians of the land, reverent guests of the land, mother earth and father sky. They treated the planet in a really different way. Whereas I think now most of us just see it as a rock floating through a pretty brutal universe and it's got some resources on it that make us sort of semi-happy. And I think unless we change that underlying metaphor, then we're not going to get through this. And I, th- I think that's incumbent on all parents to, to, to keep that value um, for their kids. Uh, the podcast finishes with uh, some questions that I ask everybody. Uh, 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 Should I be nervous? uh, Look, uh, no, just uh, look, I imagine you're going to have some interesting answers for some of these. That's all. Uh, What do you think happens when you die? Mm, I think we, um, we go back into some kind of collective uh, realm where we um, can sort of hang out with each other and um, reassess the things we might've learned at our time on this planet. And then we um, either decide to go again or we're pretty happy and we hang out in that realm. What do you... Uh, hope that people say about you when you're gone? What do you hope that people remember about you when you're gone? Oh, he was a nice guy. He was a good fella. He tried his best. Um, what is your greatest strength, do you think? Um, disseminating complex in- information into um, palatable bite-sized chunks. And what about your weakness? <laughs> what, 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 what are you, what's your biggest weakness? Um, I'm a workaholic. I, I struggle to say no. I'm too convivial sometimes. I can um, just want to please too many people. Um, I, uh, is, is there a misconception of you that people have? Oh, gosh, I don't know what people perceive, but I'd say sometimes people probably think I'm a bit nicer than I actually am. I think I have my own demons, but I, I'm very good at putting on a, a front that can be jolly a lot of the time, but... I'm probably not as good at sharing the complexities um, that I go through. If you had a time machine <laughs> and you could go back to any moment in your life, Shit. you can change it if you'd like. Yeah. You don't have to. You can, uh, you can just go back there and rewatch it if you want. Mm. You can experience something again through mm. different eyes, but you have a time machine and you have one trip, you know, do you use it? What do you use it for? Oh, yeah. I'll probably go back to an eight year old and had a, uh, had a pretty tumultuous time family wise. And I reckon I just go and give myself a hug at that time and say, you're okay. And you're enough. You are enough. And just, uh, give that little boy a bit of love. This has been great. I hope you've enjoyed it. We didn't talk about rock sport and comedy. Uh, no, and I'm an obsessed AFL fan. Okay. So well, who, do you, right. who do you follow in the AFL? Crows. Oh, okay. And you're a Bulldogs, aren't you? Bulldogs. So we've had a history. We have had a history. I was actually at the game in 90, what was the year where you basically won it and then you lost it? 90, Liberatory just uh, missed it. 97? 97? Yeah. 97. And I was sitting with a, a group of 60 year olds. He didn't miss it. It was a goal. Okay. But anyway, whatever. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and um, the sad thing is it wouldn't be any clearer now if it happened. No. Um, but, uh, no, was, no, no. It'd be worse it'd now. Be worse. There'd be a goal review. They'd get it wrong one way or the other. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> And I was sitting in the cheer squad with, no, it wasn't cheer squad, but it was about, um, 27 year old Bulldogs fans. And I watched these grown men weep 
after it. And I, we were quite ecstatic because we'd won, but I just got humbled by what it meant to those guys. And, um, I just always hoped that they were still alive when you guys won in 2016. Yeah. 2016's made everything okay. That's the thing. Like everything that came before is now okay. It's fine. Yeah. 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 But, uh, up until that point, there was a lot of heartbreak. (laughs) There was a lot of bad times being a Bulldog supporter. I've noticed even now you've had a pretty weird few years, but no one really talks about that much because it's fine because you're still basking in the glow. We waited. We when you've waited 60 years for it to happen, (laughs) if you have three or four bad seasons, to be honest, it's great, mate. We're fine. It's okay. I'll just rewatch 2016 over and over. I don't care. I don't have to go to the finals. Good. It was really busy that year, to be honest. I'd never had to be that busy. (laughs) Hey, mate this has been an absolute pleasure best of luck with the film and um thank you for coming to do this it was a, it was just really great to have this chat with you thanks for having me